You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. Our next speaker is Eleni Segas, the executive director of the Preeclampsia Foundation. So this is the downside to being the last talk of the day. Everyone wants to leave. So here's my here's my carrot. If you stay till the end, I have money to give away. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. <laughs> So thank you very much to the organizers for um, giving me just a few minutes to talk about the preeclampsia registry. For those who are regulars at this session, you've probably heard us talk about it. It's been in development for a number of years and was launched, and so I'm here to kind of give you a brief update on how things are going with it, and more importantly, for those of you who are interested in research, how this could be a viable research tool. It's also very symbiotic with the presentation that James just gave, because it really is yet another indicator of how the research community is starting to realize that we need to put patients at the center of what we're doing, not just as subjects, not just as ends, but as actual participants in the process. So the preeclampsia registry we call a living database, and you'll see why in a second, why we talk about it that way. We spent a lot of time at its inception thinking about what is the unique value proposition of this database. Obviously, there are scores of preeclampsia studies that have happened that are underway, that will happen. There are biobanks. There's an entire organization that's been developed to link biobanks. So certainly the concept of a collection of data is not unique. So what could be unique about the preeclampsia registry? And we came up with a number of attributes, including the fact that it is a living database. We all have a population that has proven to be large and extremely enthusiastic for participating in research. We have had proven family member involvement. This is through previous studies that we have enabled and done enrollment for and have shown considerable amount of enthusiasm, not just amongst those who have had preeclampsia, but amongst family members, which could allow for a depth of genetic studies. Also, we'd want to build this in a way that allows for ongoing contact, thus enabling longitudinal studies, and also creating a model that would allow for a cumulative addition of data. We all want to sit down and come up with the perfect study and think about every question we want answered with it at the get-go, but invariably we think of other questions we would have, should have, could have asked. So is there a way to create a platform that allows for cumulative additional data to be added later, thus a richer repository. And that, of course, means that you've got to have a broader consent process that would capture the breadth of both current studies as well as future studies. That is the unique value proposition of the preeclampsia registry and why we call it a living database. Of course, we had some major kind of philosophical aims as we developed this. One is, can we harmonize and standardize our data as much as possible? And so we set out to adhere to revitalize data definitions, which is collaboration initiated by ACOG, but involving quite a few women's health organizations to harmonize data definitions. We standardize the preeclampsia study design using the both minimal and optimal data sets that have been uh, suggested by co 
Lab, which is a paper that was published and identifies these data sets. And we have engaged in collaborations on other big data studies. So the Global Pregnancy Collaboratory, um, we're in the LINK registry, and we are part of the Women's Health Registry Alliance. So we launched it in September 2013. It is a web-based portal that allows for ease of use and, again, allows for evolution as we learn more along the way. One of the things that we knew we needed to do was to build engagement or what I call stickiness with those participants who are in it because we want them to not just come on board at the beginning, but we want them to stay with us and answer additional questions and stay involved. And so one way we do this is by feeding data back to them. And so this is just one pie chart of dozens of questions that are asked of them where they can see how did others like me respond? So one question is were you counseled about later life health risks associated with hypertensive disorder pregnancy? And they can instantly see that the lack of information that they didn't get was pretty common. I'm not going to go over all the information collected. It's quite extensive, but I did want to just have this chart to show you the various levels of information that we are collecting. And this loops through every pregnancy that they've had and will reconnect with them for future pregnancies. So it's, again, that living database concept. So where are we as of January 22nd? I guess that's about a week and a half, two weeks ago. We have 2,297 total participants. This represents four 4,254 pregnancies, a little more than 2,500 of them affected by hypertensive disorder, a little over 2,600 babies have been affected, which obviously represents other than just singletons in those pregnancies. At this particular time, 34 women were currently pregnant. The completion rate of the initial enrollment survey has fluctuated over time. We're hovering somewhere in the 60 to 65 to hopefully getting a little closer to 70% completion rate, which is abysmal in my opinion, but researchers tell us that this is something to be celebrated. I'm not happy with it, but we're working on that. This was not a feature when we launched the registry, but we have subsequently, just basically about a year ago today, we launched a component where we could collect medical records and have those attached to everybody's records, and we've also begun an abstraction process of those medical records. So we've got 204 medical records, and you can see in the pie chart in the lower left that what we're working toward now is getting a complete set of medical records, so prenatal, hospital, the whole, the whole picture, and then we have begun the process of abstracting them as well. So that all that data and all that information will be attached to each participant's record. Where we're not doing so well is in diversity of ethnicity. Now here in the U.S., ethnicity is usually represented as either Hispanic or non-Hispanic. That does not represent our U.S. population, so we know we don't have enough diversity there. We also, and I failed to mention this at the beginning, we're not only enrolling women who had hypertension in pregnancy, we also are able to enroll family members, so of special interest would be sisters, mothers, unaffected, so that would be unaffected relatives, controls, and we also can enroll cases of maternal death, so somebody's enrolling on their behalf and submitting all their information, which can be then analyzed. Obviously, the predominant cohort are those who have been affected, survivors of some form of preeclampsia. The other area that we're not terribly diverse in is race. By the way, this is a global registry. We do have representation from well over 100 countries. The majority of them are U.S. and English-speaking countries. 
Having said that, this again is probably not the best representation of a diverse population if 89% of them are Caucasians. Beyond that, the mix, 2.66%, we are able to capture people who self-report as mixed race. And the combinations are fairly extensive, so if you were interested, you could look more specifically at what those racial combinations are. Now, I think this is really interesting. So keep in mind that people can enroll at any point in time and they can enroll whatever the length of time has been since their affected pregnancy. And in the lower left, you can see that we have a woman who had preeclampsia, I think it's nearly 50 years ago, all the way to last week. Obviously, the more recent pregnancies are the largest number represented here. The other thing is in the pie chart, you can see the gestational age. We have pretty evenly divided into three chunks, both those who had delivered at less than 32 weeks, 32 to 36, and term. So fairly nice even mixture of the gestational age represented here. The other feature of the registry that we launched in February of 2015 is a DNA biobank. As you can see, the enrollment period, I mean, we've actually capped it at 500. The only reason that that has flattened is because we only had funding to enroll 500 participants in the DNA bank. But I think what's most significant about this is that we reached that 500 in about three months. We did want to enroll both probands as well as children of those affected women and sisters and spouses. You can see the breakdown there. I'm going to fly through this pretty quickly. We can always back up and ask questions. So we have a few other demographic pieces which I'm not going to take time to talk about right now, marital status, household income, education level. But I did want to talk about this because as researchers, you have access to this data in one of five different ways. What we call level one data is similar to that pie chart that I showed you that I as a participant can see how did others like me respond. So it's aggregated, de-identified data that just summarizes those results. For most of the questions that we ask, that does does not require IRB approval. We also can offer de-identified individual data that we've already collected from participants. We can also collect new information. So you as an investigator may have additional questions you want to ask of this cohort or some subset of this cohort. We can ask those questions and then provide that data as de-identified individual level data. IRB exemptions obviously required for the rest of these levels. We can also reach out to our entire cohort or some subset of it in order to push those people to you for an external study where you would then, obviously with IRB approval, get identified data and be able to marry it with information that you then further collect. You might actually want to bring them in and get serum samples or additional tests that you might want to run on them. And then further, kind of going along that same pattern, you can also ask new questions of these participants and extract that data as identified data. Obviously, those levels four and five come with additional consents and IRBs. I'm not going to get into the details of this, but we have really sought to make our costs to you as investigators extremely reasonable. We do not want cost to be a barrier to entry. We've done a fairly extensive analysis of other similar costs and kept this below, let's call it market value. 
we're already working with a number of investigators using the preeclampsia registry. There are genetic studies underway. There are new survey questions that are being deployed. One of them, a very extensive one called the patient journey, is really intended to understand that patient journey through symptoms, diagnosis, management, hospital care, inpatient care, outpatient care, none of which is a linear process, by the way. And diagnosis does not always precede management, by the way. In addition, we have a survey that we are going to be deploying shortly on understanding patient perspective. So these are patients' attitudes, beliefs, and values on fundamental questions like diagnosis or therapeutic interventions or expectant management, some fundamental questions that the industry researchers are spending a lot of time arguing about. So has anybody ever stopped to ask a patient? Is kind of the question that this gives us an opportunity to ask. Those are just some of the examples of proposals that we've received. Our Scientific Advisory Council, these are the men and women of our Scientific Advisory Council. When we first engaged their support, we asked them to brainstorm research questions that the preeclampsia registry is poised to answer. And we had hundreds of ideas come back to us that we summarized, and they kind of fell into five themes that I want to share with you, because these people are probably the most intimately familiar with the registry, how it was developed, what the infrastructure is for it, and the kind of data that we're collecting. And the themes of research questions that seemed optimal to this group were, number one, long-term follow-up of mothers and offspring. A couple of examples of that. Why are preeclampsia offspring at risk for stroke? When is this risk evident, childhood, adolescence, or beyond? Why is the preeclampsia offspring brain vulnerable for endothelial dysfunction and disease? There's hundreds of them. I'm just giving you a couple. Family studies was another area of intense interest. What is the inheritance pattern of preeclampsia in daughters? Can this be modified? Is there increased cardiovascular risk in family members of women with preeclampsia? And so on. Another theme was preeclampsia incidence and risk factors. Why is preeclampsia risk greater in pregnancies from ART? Are preeclampsia rates increasing over time? So in the U.S., we know that they absolutely are. If so, is the etiology and phenotype of preeclampsia changing over time so that a greater proportion of disease is actually late onset and possibly more benign? couple of questions that they think are of interest there. Psychosocial impact of preeclampsia. I can tell you this is one of the most understudied, underreported areas that absolutely has an impact on patients. How can we improve communication with patients at the time of preeclampsia to optimize the psychological impact and effects of care? And then finally, the last theme was defining phenotypic subtypes of preeclampsia. So based on women's firsthand experience, can we identify novel hypotheses regarding preeclampsia pathophysiology and begin to tease apart phenotypic subsets. Lots of other related questions, but those are just some of the themes that we've seen come out of the Scientific Advisory Council. By the way, they're not the drivers of the research questions. This is just a grouping of some of their thoughts on this. I will mention that we are constantly looking at sort of evolving the Scientific Advisory Council, so if this is something that you might be interested in serving on, definitely get in touch with us. So now the money. This is my last comment since it is now, are we past, oh yeah, we're past time. It's almost time for drinking. We try every year 
to announce uh, a call for applications for our vision grants. They have become very popular, very sought after sources of funding in preeclampsia, which is a pretty narrow field of funding. We are now, as of today, opened up our call for applications for 2016 vision grants. We are going to be making two vision grants available for $20,000. The deadline for applications is May 13th, and I would recommend that you go to our website, preeclampsia.org, slash research, slash research funding to get the application and more information for that. So that's my whirlwind presentation. Any questions before everyone dashes off for their Merlots? Lady, I was just curious, does the uh, registry also include patients that did not have preeclampsia until after delivery? Meaning postpartum preeclampsia? Yes. Are mothers involved in For the vision grant program or just in general? So we actually have about two or three different mechanisms for inserting the patients in this. Number one, in the registry itself, there's a place for them to suggest research questions. We also have a patient advisory council, and we also have a patient review committee that's involved in the choosing of our vision grants. So three places just off the top of my head. All right. Thank you all for your time. Thank you, everybody, for sticking it out till the end. And just a reminder from Dr. Lindheimer, the International Society for the Study of Hypertension and Pregnancies in Sao Paulo, Brazil, in October 26th. So hope to see you all there. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com AMJ Perinatology. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next month when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology.